0: And welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute.
1: And my name is Ian Rowe, a visiting fellow at AEI.
0: Joining us today is Robert Condicio. He is the author of How the Other Half Learns, and he is also a senior fellow at the Fordham Institute. And he has been writing some great blog posts, and he is very funny on Twitter, and just has been making some great observations about education under the lockdown. So we wanted to bring him in today to talk about a few things. But the first thing that caught our eye was this lawsuit in Michigan. There was a a group of young people who said that they had the right to learn how to read. And they sued the state over it. That'll That's point. reasonable. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It seems like, <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Young people should, <laughs> the expectation that schools should teach you how to read seemed like a reasonable
0: Oh, the standards are so low. But anyway, so so Robert, we wanted to find out a little bit more of your thoughts on this.
2: Yeah, and first of all, thanks for having me, Ian and Naomi. Nice, Nice to be with you. You know, look, I have a complicated perspective on this. You know, actually, I have a complicated perspective on, on a lot of things in education. But, you know, Ian, you're joking about it, but you're kind of right. In other words, if we're going to require families to send their children into a, you know, a, a, a state thing called a school for, you know, six, eight, ten hours a day, well, then they ought to be able to learn how to read by the time they're done with that, right? I mean, that doesn't seem... Yeah, to and maybe to some math... Right.
1: And
2: maybe some math, science, some... measure. I mean, it's one of those things that you, you talk to an average person about and say, wait a minute, hold on a second. Are you telling me that's not already a thing that that, exactly. that that I might not learn how to read? But look, having as soon as you say that, you know, that's when it gets complicated. You know, in other words, if you want to start to encourage students to start suing schools, well, you know, there's like four out of five low-income kids of color in this in this country fail to reach reading proficiency by the eighth grade. That's a lot of lawsuits, and that gets very, very expensive. The one thing I will say, I'm not a lawyer, is that at the end of the day, I'm not sure that this has anything to do with anything other than a failure of know-how on the part of the school system. In other words, it's not as if they need more money to do this job. They need to know how to do a better job.
1: Why do you think the school system has had to resort to legal means, which I agree, I can't see what's going to be different in terms of the actual intervention, but why would this system have had to, why would these young people have have had to resort to this mechanism for something that should be fundamental?
2: Yeah, well, it's a hell of a good attention-getting mechanism, right? In other words, we're here talking about it from you know a thousand miles away. So obviously, it's a way of, of getting attention and, and raising this to a, to a level of national concern, and obviously creating a sense of, of urgency in the city of Detroit. I mean, on the one hand, you could make a constitutional argument that there really isn't a right to read, so to speak, but what politician wants to be seen appealing this case to a higher court, as it were, as I'm sure you both know, that the, the state has, is, is gonna settle, it looks like.
1: And you've been a great proponent, particularly in low-income communities, of the idea of a content-rich curriculum, following the the work of Edie Hirsch, talk about that in terms of right. the real focus on how we get more kids to read.
2: Yeah, well, you and I, I think, are, are kindred souls in in that regard, Ian. With your work as a charter school leader, well, this I alluded to this earlier. I mean, again, it's it's not as if the will doesn't exist. It's the, it's the competence. I mean, reading the state of reading instruction in this country is is substandard, to put it as as gently as possible. And, and there's not a lot of evidence that it's going to get better, not because of funding, but because of just the wrong ideas that we have about how to teach you know, reading. And Ian, you nicely alluded to this, but I mean, I was a, a mid-career switch, right? I didn't see the inside of an elementary school classroom until I was nearly 40 years old. And I taught in the lowest performing school, in the lowest performing district in the South Bronx, not very far from where Ian has the headquarters of his charter management organization and there i saw what ed hirsch jr had described in all of his books for, for years my classroom was filled with kids who could quote decode they could read the words of the text but they couldn't comprehend it and that had nothing to do with say you know reading strategies or engagement it had to do with background knowledge and language proficiency and this just became my cause in education and because every time i would bring up hirsch's work to people in the district and my union and professional development i would hear some variation of oh that's that dead white guy stuff nobody takes that seriously I'm like wait a minute that's not what this is about at all it's, you know hersch's work is about reading comprehension etc long story short if folks in the city of detroit if teachers in the city of detroit are laboring under the same kind of misconceptions that we were laboring in in new york city circa 2002 well there's no reason to assume that all the money in the world is going to is going to change the literacy level of their children
0: right that's probably a good point at which we could pivot into a, a discussion of kind of what teaching kids to read has looked like recently under the lockdown, both how much more difficult it is online and also, you know, some of the strategies that were being proposed. I know you were tweeting the other day about differentiation and I know that's another something that, is, that has gotten under your, your skin as well. So can you just sort of give us a little tour of kind of what's worked and what hasn't over the last couple of months?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And and the list of what hasn't worked is probably a lot longer than than the risk list of what, what has worked. You gotta be careful here because, you know, let's be candid, what we're facing in this country and have been since mid-March is a health emergency first, an economic emergency, you know, second, an employment emergency third. Education is not at the top of our priority list. So I'm probably a little more forgiving than than a lot of, of other folks who do what I do at the lack of preparedness that we've had in schools all across the country to meet this moment that said the longer this goes on the less excuse there is we certainly just can't you know stop educating children between now and when we get a vaccine in, in who knows 12 18 months at some point we have to 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 start making a, a more concerted effort than we have and i don't have the data at arm's length but there has been you know a lot of reportage in the new york times and the wall street journal and elsewhere that just basically illustrates the fact that, that we're not really trying that hard to, to do anything other than keep kids on kind of educational life support right now, if that. So what's, gonna, what's this going to look like in the fall becomes the question, and, and I wish I could be more optimistic. I'm frankly quite, quite dour about it, because there's, there's no reason to expect a K-12 system that at large fails more than it succeeds. There's no reason to expect that we're suddenly going to develop these great reserves of competence in unforeseen circumstances. I mean, that's, you know, it's very easy to say, well, we've just got to get this right. Well, there's no evidence to suggest that we know how to do that.
0: So in terms of what has been working, I know you wrote a little bit about Success
2: Academies, which is what
0: your book was about. What are they doing that is working? And what are some of the things that other schools you think might be able to copy?
2: Those are two very, very different questions, Naomi. So in other words, why has Success Academy succeeded? I would argue that they have succeeded because they had the, the kind of the culture and, and the program in place to allow them to make a fairly smooth transition. I don't want to give the idea that it's easy. I mean, you know, all of us have a lot of balls in the air right now. So, you know, it's not easy, but they had a, a good curriculum. They had technology in students' hands at the middle school and high school level. They have a culture of, of high expectations for kids. A uh, culture of of parental engagement baked in. These are the kinds of things that that set them up for success. So it's still hard, but a lot of schools had to try to invent things like that on the fly, and and you just can't kind of gin up a new culture overnight. So you know, if luck is the residue of design, Success Academies design walking into this moment set them up for a greater level of success than others. So it's easy to say, let me anticipate your next question. Well, why can't every school do what success has done? Well, because they don't have those those pieces in place. They don't have the technology in kids' hands. They don't have the set curriculum. They don't have the adult culture of high expectations. They don't have the level of parental engagement. And it's really, really hard to invent those things at a moment's notice.
0: Well, a lot of I've certainly heard anecdotally I think this is true in a lot of school districts what you had very quickly after the lockdown was a set of demands placed by the teachers unions in different districts that were sort of this is what what we are willing to do as teachers and you know you can take it or leave it the district where right. I live it was very much like we are not guaranteeing any kind of synchronous learning in a right. district where a friend of mine teaches she's a literacy specialist and they were told don't have any synchronous learning because the kids will record it and then you might get in trouble for something you said. So, you know, there was already this kind of antagonistic culture and a sense of, you know, we are going to use this. We are not going to promise anything out of this. And I wonder you know how much that is a factor too. It's not just the culture in terms of the parent buy-in, but also in terms of the teacher commitment.
2: Yeah, I think that's, that's probably right, and I've also heard anecdotes about entire states telling teachers, union or non-union teachers, "Look, you're only doing review from now on. You're not introducing any new material for the rest of the year." So, so there, right away, you're you're you know you're guaranteeing that students at best stay where they are, circa March 2020, and 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 don't get you know where, where they need to be by the end of the school year. This is not exactly the question that you just asked, Naomi, but I think it's worth thinking about. What's this gonna look like come August or September when we don't have a vaccine? When even if we you know we are given by public health officials the all-clear. I mean, having worked in the Department of Education for, for, for many years, I can promise you that there are no small numbers of teachers who have health complications. They are older, they are overweight, they've got diabetes, etc. And it seems to me that we're gonna have a, a significant problem with the number of teachers saying, not unreasonably, hey, look, I don't feel safe being back in class. And of course, you're going to have some number of parents saying the same thing about their students as well. Could there be another outbreak, et cetera? The long story short is even in the best of times, we struggle for low-income kids, for children of color in particular, to get them to levels of proficiency. If you layer on top of that all this uncertainty, is my teacher going to be there, not going to be there? Am I going to be online? Am I going to be in person? Is it going to be blended? Do I have a parent at home to help me? On and on and on. All these moving parts, to my mind, add up to academic catastrophe for our most vulnerable students.
1: So, Robert, is, is there any way to look at this, you know, the famous phrase, necessity is the mother of invention? You know, it took Hurricane Katrina essentially to force a recalibration of that entire school system. How can this actually force innovation in the education arena where... Heretofore, we we've all talked about changes in reading, instruction, or other ways, but technology seems to be a way in which Success Academy and others are achieving gains. What's the catalyst that could drive that?
2: Yeah, you just described it. If you want to say that necessity is the mother of invention, it's interesting because, as I'm sure you know, Ian, the ugly stepchild of education and ed reform for some time now has been online charter schools. We all love to hate them because you know, their results are, are nothing to brag about. But they must feel you know, like, like, like that Toby Keith country song now. How do you like me now? You know, they're, We kind of need what they do. And we no longer have the luxury of being dismissive of the idea of online learning. That's not to say that we're going to suddenly get good at this anytime soon. I, mean, I think we have to brace ourselves for, I don't want to overstate the case, but, but a generation of kids who are just not going to be where they need to be and may never quite catch up if we are not able to return fairly quickly to, to standard-issue schooling, so to speak. But your your point is well taken. We have to kind of build new models at the very least in anticipation of the next disruptive event, and we can no longer afford to not have that be part of, of basic practice for schools, for administrators, for teacher training. But nobody should be under the illusion that this is something we're going to develop a competence at any time quickly.
0: Are there certain hallmarks? I don't know whether you've been able to witness any of what's been going on on the Zoom meetings in some of the classrooms. Is there anything that you think is kind of the thing that kind of we must do going forward? I mean, it has occurred to me just watching my own kids that I wonder whether class size actually matters more with kind of online learning. It's It's kind of a... A slower medium and I wonder whether it's more important to have these small groups when we're not seeing people in person, or are there other kind of structural factors that are useful to think about just in terms of you know trying to make online learning more successful?
2: It's a great question, and I'm not gonna pretend to have expertise that I don't have, but I think what as a general principle, look, you know, everything works for someone, nothing works for everyone. As a general rule, children who have certain advantages, whether it's intrinsic motivation, a parent who is, you know, hovering nearby and keeping them focused, resources, enrichment opportunities, those kids will tend to do fine under virtually any setting, including sitting under an apple tree with a with a sling. But we knew this. This is not news. You know, this has been kind of what we keep learning over and over and over again. The trick for those of us in the policy world is, okay, well, how are we going to be able to keep kids without those advantages in the game? That's the far heavier lift. What works on Zoom, a lot of things, you know, there have been any number of articles, I think the Times had one a few weeks ago, that for some kids, remote schooling and, and you know, Zoom Academy, so to speak, has been a boon without question. You know, kids who want a you know a quieter, more studious setting, I'm sure it's been great for them. I would have preferred that as a kid too. But that's not the same thing as, oh, look how well this works, let's do this for everybody.
0: All right, well, we are going to leave it there. I want to thank our guest, Robert Pondicio, and encourage you all to listen to episodes of Are You Kidding Me? You can find them at the AEI website or wherever you download your podcasts. So with that, I am Naomi Schaefer-Riley.
1: And I'm Ian Rowe.
0: Thanks for listening.